Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Catherine Van Zippel, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. Hello, listeners. I'm very excited about this week's guest. Before I introduce him, though, I want to thank my family and friends for the support since our launch just two weeks ago. Your likes, comments, and shares make this project even more fun than it already has been. We're now on Instagram with the handle at devdebrief. Follow that account for episode teasers and highlights. But back to the important thing, this week's guest. Craig Smith is a senior consultant at John Brown Limited, Inc. and is currently consulting for Columbia. I have personally benefited from his programming. Craig has over 25 years of experience in development and has served in various capacities both as fundraising staff and as consultant. He has managed large teams of gift officers and has helped to develop and manage campaigns from as small as $6 million to as large as $4.2 billion. I love working with Craig because he is passionate about helping gift officers reach their goals and makes the process fun. We talk about the program he co-founded with Dan Shepard called The Four Decisions and The Two-Part Conversation, as well as how to own the conversation, which is something that all of us can benefit from, practice, and learn for really our lifetimes. So let's get started. Thank you, it's a pleasure. I've done a lot of trainings with Craig. And so I thought, oh my gosh, you know, he agreed to do this podcast. Where, where do I even begin? What do I focus on? And Ryan was reflecting and he said, you know what? Craig's superpower is owning the conversation. So I thought, then that's it. That's what we'll focus on. And the other thing I love about that is that it's not specific to development anyone in their business pursuits wants to know how to own the conversation. And so I'm excited for people outside of our field right. to fully glean some things. Yep. You're absolutely right about that. So you've written a couple of articles on LinkedIn, which I will recommend to people. And one of them was called hunters versus farmers. And I want to start there because it talks about the different approaches of fundraisers. Um, I want to start with a quote that stood out to me. You said, hunters represent roughly 20% of the population. They have three key traits. One, they are competitive. Two, they are outcome oriented. And three, they are eternal optimists. Perfect traits for success in fundraising. Farmers, on the other hand, while very good at planting the seed and nurturing the crop, are not risk takers at heart. So talk to us about how you came up with this idea and how it informs your trainings and consulting. So I was visiting with a man who was the chair of the visiting committee for the School of Business at RIT, where I worked at the time, and a really good donor and a very good volunteer. And he got talking with me about someone on my staff who he worked with and brought up this concept of hunters versus farmers, which I had never heard of before. And I think he was trying to make a point about people who do, do frontline fundraising well. And so I went and did a little homework about it. And I had a real epiphany because in the months before that, we'd hired a couple of people into development jobs because they had those wonderful traits that we all look for, gregarious and talkative and um, friendly, fun to get to know. And within a very short period of time, um, these hires clearly were meant to be alumni affairs officers, not development officers. The chase and the sense of closure uh, wasn't something that they were good at or 
or embraced well. So as I read about this hunter versus farmer concept that hunters have these three traits, they're competitive, they're outcome oriented, and they are eternal optimists. I thought, wow, let me think about how that relates to a way I manage people because I managed my whole team using a thing called a DISC assessment, which you may or may not be familiar with. DISC, I recommend it to anybody. And what I discovered was it's possible uh, to sort of figure out uh, whether people are hunters versus farmers. Hunters, I think I came to the conclusion that I wanted to hire people who are at least 50% and preferably 75% hunter and 50 to 25% farmer because I really needed people who enjoyed the chase, if you will, um, you know, in a sincere, respectful kind of way, and also were interested in, in closure at the right time and in the right way. However, they had to have some farmer in them because otherwise they couldn't do the long-term relationship building and the stewardship part of our jobs, which is very important to do. So, yeah, the patience that's required. I find all the time I have to remind myself, be patient. Oh, you are so right. And you know, this is a business where you don't go to work in the morning and uh, make some widgets and see your your outcome by the end of the afternoon. You're absolutely right. You have to have plenty of patience for this work. But you also have to be constantly looking for is is closure upon me. Can I get there soon? Can I test for it? So once I figured this out, I started thinking much more carefully about people who are coming in as candidates and whether or not they had a fair amount of hunter in them. And the way I related that back to DISC is, is I was looking for people with high I scores. Those are the people who really like getting together and, and being gregarious and, and social. But I wanted people with high D scores because those are folks who are very outcome oriented. Those two scores together tended to predict success in a front, frontline fundraising job. Their, their CNS scores weren't nearly as important because they could, they could develop those things over time. But I couldn't teach them to be a D. The other thing I discovered, I, I heard one, one frontline fundraiser who was clearly 100% D. He was very successful, but nobody wanted to see him twice. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't wear well, right? He was a little too aggressive. And somebody who's you know 75% to 100% farmer is really great at relationship building and, and stewardship, but as I say, they aren't good fundraisers. Together, people who have these skills make great partners. Hunters are independent and solution-oriented. Uh, they score high on initiative, independence, and networking. They also understand and demonstrate one of my favorite lines, which you probably heard from me before, uh, two ears and one mouth for a reason. Uh, that's the concept of listening more than we talk. Hunters are also good detectives who can figure out what motivates somebody to action. And farmers excel at collaboration and building loyalty. And together as teams, they're absolutely unbeatable. So I used to work hard to get folks on my team to appreciate their difference and why the strengths they brought to the table helped each of them be successful at their jobs. So for those who are listening, who are hearing you describe farmers and thinking, oh, that, that sounds a lot like me, and they're in development roles, can they be converted, you think? Well, I think it's, it depends on, on where you fall on that continuum. If you're really uh, a lot, uh, if you have a, a, a distinctly farmer personality, you might have trouble enjoying the work that is frontline development. Mm -hmm. um, I've talked to a few people uh, about it, and they just don't want to do it. They don't like it that well. 
I think it's easier for hunters to develop some of the softer side of the skills, uh, again, depending on where they are on the continuum. So if you're at either end of the continuum, I think it's very difficult to change your, change your stripes. I think if you're closer, if you're 75, 25, either way, you can probably develop these other skills. Um, and and when you're for consulting for, you know, some of the big universities that you're currently working with, can you tell if someone's a hunter or a farmer when you're training them? just by the way they talk or the way they act? Yeah, I find that the people who I believe are hunters uh, are the ones who really actively engage. They want to soak up the knowledge and figure out how to use it. Uh, they don't tend to hand back, hang back. They're willing to take a risk and stick their necks out and try things on and, and get a little uncomfortable. Those are the ones who I think, if I, as I get to know them better, or if I hired, was going to hire them, I would believe are probably more hunter than farmer. And so this begs the question that is maybe a little bit controversial. Can only a hunter own the conversation? Oh, no, on the contrary. Um, that's that's a, a skill that anybody can learn. Um, it, it's more natural for some than others, but it's possible for anybody to do it. It's about uh, listening well. And I think that hunters also subscribe to an underlying concept you've also heard me say, which is my favorite line is, diplomacy is the art of letting others have your way. And to do that, you have to listen well to figure out what's in it for someone else to do what you're hoping they'll do and to show them the reasons that it's in their best interests and probably yours too for you to both go together in that direction. Mm -hmm. Before we dive further into the lines, like the one you just shared and others that people can use in a very practical way on the road and with their donors. I want to talk about the four decisions, which okay. I think of as a toolbox for myself when I'm going out. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Craig's consulting style is very interactive. And I, I actually really look forward to them because <laughs> it's uh, role-playing and they'll invite different people to come up either as the development officer or as the uh, donor, and we are practicing the four decisions. This fall, I've taught the seminar that leads up to these interactive case studies about 12 different times to, to a number of different uh, university and uh, nonprofit sector clients. Well, I'm grateful to my colleague, Dan Shepard. Uh, he's uh, the frontline fundraiser is where you can find him uh, online. I met Dan at a case conference about a decade ago, and it synthesized for me some experiences I'd had with John Brown. John had taught me all about gift planning by both taking and helping him teach his seminar. But I came to realize that people who took that seminar, if they didn't go home and use what they'd learned in the next week or two, they probably forgot a lot of it in no time flat. Then I started doing feasibility study interviews for John and used his questionnaire which was ultimately brilliant because it got people to talk to you from their heart first and their head second. And when they did that, sometimes you'd hear them say things that they'd only previously thought. And you could see body language change, facial expressions change. They suddenly realized they were really a lot more engaged and committed to something than they might have thought. And when I met Dan, he taught a, a master class at this case conference called the Road Warriors Toolkit. And he had codified an approach, which is summed up in the four decisions in the two-part conversation, that really enables you as a frontline fundraiser to own the agenda of the conversation with your donor and to not get caught up in transactional approaches. Because 
that's what we've trained ourselves and donors, I think, to expect a lot of the time. It's why do you care about the organization? And by the time you get through that conversation with someone, they're excited enough, they often go straight to, so how much do you want or how much are you going to ask me for? So you go straight from why to the fourth decision, which is will you? And you skip over the real gift conversation, which is what and how. Why and what are the emotional so parts? just to repeat, for those who've hmm? never heard of this, the, the order is why, what, how, and will you? Right. And so I love it because it gets people talking from their heart first, their head second. Once you get through why, the challenge is to learn how to pivot to the what part of the conversation. And when you do that, uh, you learn that you can ask for a two-part conversation. The first part of it is going to be about what you want to accomplish with your giving. Often I say, put money aside for this part. Let's talk about what you'd want to accomplish if you could make a true, truly meaningful gift for you and for us. And by the way, before we start down that road, I want to invite a two-part conversation. The second half would be about how you might best make your gift. And by that, I mean when, with what assets, and given your priorities. And I say to them, will you have a conversation with me in those two parts? I have yet to have anybody say no. They find it a little unusual. They're not used to being invited to have that kind of conversation. But it enables me to keep them from hijacking me all the way to the end, which is, will you give? Which is a decision they have to make. And so if you learn how to pivot from why to really exploring what with people, what it is they want to accomplish, and then stop and say, now let's remember we talked about how you're going to best make your gift. And at that point, it's about proactively putting statements and questions out there to them rather than making assumptions. But based on what you know about somebody, for instance, if you're with someone who owns a, you know, their own business and maybe they're in their late 50s, early 60s, you might say, this part of the conversation sounds like this. You might tell me, for instance, that you're thinking about selling your business. And at that point, you just, you know, listen, I'll listen to the answer and uh, ask some additional probing questions. And we help people understand that when they're doing this questioning, if a donor says, you know, you're getting kind of personal with me about this stuff, they need to have an answer ready, a sincere, honest answer, which is, yes, I ask these questions because we find that people, other people who are contributing to us find ways to give gifts that aren't based just on cash and that tend to help them be more generous and save more taxes in the process. Mm -hmm. So if you'll allow me to ask these questions, you know, I'm not being impertinent uh, and it'll be confidential, but I want to be able to go back to our experts, my colleagues back at the office and talk this through with them and help you make the best gift that you can for you and your circumstances. You know, the other thing that's really great about this approach is that it ensures the donor will never be surprised by the ask because you've set it up in a way that they, in fact, they're probably waiting for it, right? They've, they've given you permission to have this conversation with them and right. take them down this road. And it's all about, I was as I was thinking about this, I realized there's a difference between acceptance and trust. As development officers, we can be accepted when we're doing our jobs in a transactional way. Uh, donors will accept us, uh, but they don't necessarily know us or trust us because we don't necessarily spend that much time talking to them. So transactional fundraising is very different than what I'd call trust-based fundraising where the real gift conversations can happen. But people will tell you these things if you respectfully invite them 
to talk with you in this way. But I, I just love the whole approach of the four decisions in the two-part conversation because if in the middle of the conversation you say, now, Craig, I, I really want to talk about what I'm going to give. If I haven't really figured out and filled out why do you really care, what do you really want to accomplish, and truly find out more about how you might best make your gift, I'm able to say, you know, time out, we need to back up a little bit here. I'm not sure I completely understand this subject. So I can keep myself from being, or you, if you're doing this, from being hijacked in this regard. So, yeah, it's a, it's a powerful approach. Yeah, I think asking for permission and asking some of these questions that we're about to delve into is almost breaking the fourth wall. I mean, I kind of love the play analogy because we're talking about this role playing and, you know, it's always fun to have a little bit of drama in an act or a gift closure. You're basically going out of your role as gift officer and, you know, talking to them very upfront. It's about being a really good detective and not necessarily a problem solver. Which is the fun part because you don't know what you don't know. <laughs> you got it. I sometimes put up on the on the board this big circle I learned from taking some courses with an outfit called Landmark International. And the big pie, there's a tiny little sliver that's what you know. And there's another tiny little sliver of what you know that you don't know. Like, I don't know how to fly an airplane, but I could teach myself how. And then there's the huge part of the pie of what you don't know that right. you don't know. And if you want to be a really effective frontline fundraiser, you need to spend as much of your time in that world as possible. And it means asking a lot of questions and listening well and asking more questions. And there's a corollary to this that I also recommend to people. Do a little homework about something called reversing techniques. You've heard me talk about this, Kathy. Yes, I think I I've shown those. you the material. Because yes. if you want to keep the conversation going, it's easy to do it by asking more questions. But it's really important to use some softening statements before you continue to ask questions. Otherwise, you come off like you're interrogating people. So give us an sincerely. example. So, you know, uh, an example would be somebody says something to you and say, well, no, that, you know, that's a really good point you're making, but, you know, help me understand a little bit more. I'm not quite sure I fully get what you're talking about. That's a softening statement kind of way to get to the question. There are other, some other parts to it. One of the lines I like best, there's a softening strategy called the magic wand. And so I might say to somebody, you know, if you had a magic wand, it could wave it and either change something or make the gift that's really meaningful to you or whatever, what would you do? So it takes I you out of I love that one because that I one always makes people smile. Yep, it does. And, and it opens people up. So reversing techniques are a great way to add to your skill set here, what you call your toolbox of the four decisions. And you've also heard me talk recently about another book I highly recommend to people called Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as If Your Life Depended on It. That book has so much good advice. If you read that book and, and get to know reversing techniques and use the four decisions two-part conversation, you can really own conversations with people and they will enjoy being with you. Well, Craig, I have to say, I do think that you like shock value a little bit because I've watched <laughs> you get up in front of a group and, and say one of these questions and people will look at you like you're crazy. Like I know. Professional fundraisers are so almost scared to ask some of these things and, mm -hmm. and what I want to talk about is why you think we're afraid to ask something like what's your biggest asset yeah we just don't get brought up to do that remember when you get into a development job it goes against what your parents brought you up to believe which is don't talk to strangers because <laughs> we get and paid every day. Money. We get paid to go talk to strangers and talk about money and that's not something that happens well 
as you're growing up. So I think the reason people are afraid to ask questions is that they, there are assumptions in their head that if they ask these questions, they're going to make somebody angry or upset mm-hmm. rather than testing to see if that's really the case. Cause you can always back off. If you've clearly, if you've asked a, a sort of probing question and there's a, you know, a raised eyebrow or a long pause, it's easy to say, look, have I asked you something uncomfortable? Cause I'm not, I'm not here to offend you, but tell me what, what, tell me about this, please. I'm happy to back off. I just, I'm, you know, I really do want to try and help. And this is the way I go about it. But you can always back off because not everybody will have these conversations with you. But I think it's about assumptions that people won't tell you this stuff. And they also put this off onto their gift planning colleagues. They think they're the only ones who can ask these questions. And you've learned in your own work, Catherine, I know that you no longer believe that that's the case. You believe that you can ask these questions and you've discovered you can. Yeah, I actually want to share one of my own stories as an example when talking with a donor about their assets um, to ask them, is that your biggest one? So I was in a prospect visit. This is a second meeting with someone who was talking about his mother's apartment and that she bought it in the 80s. And he told me where it was. It was on the Upper West Side, which we all know is really high value real estate, a couple bedrooms. She owned it outright. And so in my head, I'm thinking it's at least a couple million dollars. And I asked him, is her apartment her biggest asset? And without skipping a beat, he said, no, it's not. Then he said, she has an art collection. And Mm -hmm. then I used Craig's technique of, of repeating back. And I said, so would it be fair to assume that you're, what you're telling me is that your mother has a seven figure art collection? And he said, yes, she does. You've just basically taken the first of the skills from the book, Never Split the Difference. What you've just done is called mirroring. And you've simply repeated back to this donor what he had just told you. And if you do that, people will tell you more. I have not heard that put that way, Catherine. You have, you have built on this when you say that that's your way of doing it. That you say, is that your biggest asset? That's not a question I've ever asked anybody, but it's a good one. Wait, I thought you taught me that. <laughs> no, you thought that up. You thought that up as a, as a, uh, as having built on the four decisions in this approach. This is what we, this is what Dan and I love about this is that we work hard to help everybody who learns this stuff find their own voice, find their own way to do it. Because mm. you know, it's yeah. I got my way, you have your way. But unless you can find a way that's comfortable for you, you won't do it. Yeah, I think that's true. We all have to build our own style. And Mm -hmm. if we're just reading off of a script, no matter how good it is, right. The drama analogy. (laughs) (laughs) It it pays to have a few good questions that you can keep in your mind's eye all the time. I mean, I love the one I love to say to a donor, if you could leave everything you have to your heirs, would you, you get the most interesting answers to that, that will lead to a really interesting conversation Mm -hmm. or one of the ones I like is what would keep you from signing a gift agreement right now? Cause you'll find out what, whatever underlying objections they are. And the corollary of that one is one of my friend Dan taught me, which is what do I need to do to earn the right to ask you for a meaningful gift or to discuss a meaningful gift with you? And do people know how to answer that or do they usually pause and have to think? Sometimes um, they'll always pause cause they do think about the answer. What do I have to do to earn the right to discuss a meaningful gift with you? They're trying to figure out whether or not you've just asked them for a gift or if you're really asking for a conversation, <laughs> which is what you're really trying to do is ask for the conversation. And if there are objections to it, 
you'll find out if they'll say, well, I, I need to know this, or I need to experience that, or I need to talk to this person. They may say, you know, we can talk about that right now. Uh, in which case you better be ready <laughs> to yeah. carry on that conversation with someone. I'm sure you learned so much from John Brown, but what, what is the one thing that you think about all the time? Uh, I learned more from John Brown than I did from anybody in this business. Primary thing I learned was never to use jargon when talking about gift uh, concepts with people. To listen well, to ask good questions, and especially to allow your sincerity to show through. I mean, if you mm -hmm. ever saw him in action, you just knew that it was all coming from his heart, though his head was full of really great stuff. So that was, that was John's uh, style and his great strengths. Is there anything else that people should always kind of have in the back of their mind during a prospect visit or best practices that, that you want to leave us with? There's a sting song I love called Englishman in New York. It's my favorite. It has a refrain in it that goes like this, be yourself no matter what they say. And so people want to know who the real you is. Just learn to be comfortable with who you are and be yourself and be an honest broker for the organizations you're working for and be truly curious and get over worrying about asking questions about assets. People will tell you if you ask them. And that's where 75 to 90% of people's wealth is sitting. It's not in their cash. It's in assets. You know, Craig and I talked, I had a trip earlier this week to Chicago and I was lucky to grab him for 20 minutes before I went. And we were talking about gift vehicles and in advance of this particular meeting, um, this alum was telling me that he had given this $5,000 gift and he was clearly very proud of it. So it was signaling to me that talking about six figures was premature. And I said to him, per Craig's advice, how did you give that gift to that other institution? And he sort of looked at me and I said, the reason why I ask is because if you need more tax deduction, you can give through securities or stock or a more creative vehicle. And he looked, he looked at me like the people look at you, Craig, like I had five heads and he was like, you can do that. Right. This is, like, <laughs> this is a very sophisticated, very wealthy man in private equity. Oh, I've had people like that. When you tell them <laughs> about the benefits of giving a gift of appreciated stock, there's a long pause at the end of which they look at you completely seriously and say, that can't be legal. I've laughed out yes. loud with people and said, well, call your accountant and then call me back. Tell me what you find out. Yes. Right. And I they, didn't, I didn't want to make him feel embarrassed. He didn't know that. And so I just said, that's why I have a job so that I can let you know things like right. this. And he said, right. that's the way I want to give to Columbia. So Craig, right. thank you. Right. I mean, you can give appreciated stock that costs you a lot less and keep the cash and use the cash differently that you otherwise would have given Columbia. And so Columbia sure. gets what they were hoping for and the donor, you know, is better off in the end. Yeah. Well, I'd love to end with my signature question, which is, what do you know for sure? Well, this goes back to my comments earlier about acceptance versus trust. What I know for sure is trust rules. It is the most important thing with friends and family and colleagues, and especially in the roles we play, trust with your donors is the secret to success. And if you don't build it consciously and purposefully, you're really missing the boat. So that's the one thing I know that makes a huge difference and it's what allows you to go from transactional fundraising to real gift conversations. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us and we'll be in touch. Catherine, this was a lot of fun. I thank you very much for inviting me to do it.